Welcome. Here is a thought experiment. Imagine that someone came to you and told you, I want you to come and work for me, and whatever you're currently making, I'm going to pay you five times the amount of that money. Five times. So if currently your employer is paying you $50,000 per year, I will pay you $250,000 per year. If you make $100,000 now, I will pay you $500,000. All you have to do is come to my country, which is a dictatorship, but that's none of your business. You will live in a mansion. You will do what you do best, do your work. All I'm asking you is if you see any atrocities, any injustices, just look the other way. Just stay quiet and you will be richer than you'd ever imagine. Would you take that deal? Well, it turns out that many soccer fans, many soccer stars, sorry, I can't call it soccer, I'll be calling it football from now on. Many football stars like Ronaldo or Neymar took the deal and they went to play in the Saudi league, in the football league of Saudi Arabia, which is now the biggest disruptor in world football. It's the league that has, uh, that, that has gathered many, many great players. At the same time, in the same country, in Saudi Arabia, a few weeks ago, we read in the news that a man was condemned to death for writing some tweets, for retweeting some mild criticisms to the government. And this guy, very interestingly, had only 10 followers on Twitter and he was condemned to death. So this is Saudi Arabia today, a country of extravagant wealth, of extravagant PR campaigns with its ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, trying to attract the attention of the world to his 2030 vision about the country. And at the same time, it's a country of autocracy, of censorship, of execution, and of gender apartheid. Now, you could say, why do I care about Saudi Arabia? I'm not a football star. I'm not going to be offered a crazy big contract anytime soon. Well, you should care about Saudi Arabia because Recently, we heard that there have been some discussions for the United States to strengthen its ties with Saudi Arabia. Apparently, there's a new, there's a, actually a defense deal on the table, which could even involve a third party, United States, Saudi Arabia and Israel. So we're asking some questions today. Is it, is it selfish to go and work in a dictatorship if it's going to make you a lot of money? And is there anything to be gained for the United States for strengthening its ties with Saudi Arabia. We're going to answer these questions in New Idea Live, the podcast of the Anwar Institute. I'm Nikos Hidrakopoulos, and with me today, Elan Zurno. So Elan, too many stories about Saudi Arabia these days. What is the biggest news? The football, the possible deal, the possible uh, forming of relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. What is the big picture here? I think they're both big stories, but I, I want to get from you a little bit of context for why the soccer is such a big story. When we were talking about this before the broadcast, you were surprised at how little I knew. And I admit, I don't follow soccer. So I think what would be useful is just to get a sense. You said this is Saudis are the biggest disruptors in this sport. I mean, I've read that they are buying into golf. They've basically bought up the PGA tour. They're into other sports. Give us maybe some context for why who is, I mean, I honestly, I had to look up who Ronaldo is and who Neymar was on Google. So okay, I think just give us a flavor of so why he, this is, who they are and why this is a big deal on the soccer front. 
so here's the context what happened a few months ago saudi arabia basically nationalized its football league so there's something called the public investment fund in saudi arabia which is led by none other than the crown prince bin salman himself so what they did is they literally nationalized the top four teams and they heavily subsidized some other teams and these football teams landed some of the biggest stars in world football now no one had heard about the saudi league before or i mean no at least in europe or at least it wasn't any big news in world football so suddenly a league that no one knows lands players like cristiano ronaldo who is the equivalent say of lebron james of neymar of the of the captain of uh, liverpool the biggest the most iconic team in england the best scorer of real madrid the most historic team of, of, in in football so they spent a ridiculous amount of money to land these players now when i say ridiculous amount of money we have a, a, a table which puts into perspective what we mean that the, the saudis are throwing crazy money in football so let's see this table which has three big names so again cristiano ronaldo he's some people claim the best player in the world i think he's second best the best is messi so cristiano ronaldo his previous salary was 31 million per year in manchester united this is a lot of money in saudi arabia he's making 200 million per year jordan henderson the captain of liverpool most iconic team in england 8 million per year for captaining liverpool 48 million per year to go and play in saudi arabia karim benzema the the the, the leader of real madrid real madrid is the biggest team in the world 20 million per year in real madrid 100 million per year in saudi arabia and also by the way he gets 20 million fee to be quote an ambassador so here's the important thing here all these players who go and play in saudi arabia their boss is literally the saudi government because again these teams are owned by the government by the public investment fund which has as its head bill salman and it's all only football players they had also football managers uh, football executives and all that stuff but this is not all the Saudis have also bought Newcastle United, which is one of the biggest teams in England, again, under the public investment fund. So the big question here is, how are they throwing all this money? Why would the regime spend such an amount of money on football? What are they after? And here's, I will give you the official explanation that the, that the Saudis give, and then you tell me whether you're persuaded. So their official explanation is we want to attract investments in football which is okay reasonable they will attract investments but also they say we want to we want to fight obesity in our population and we want to make population more active but if you ask me it's probably cheaper to hire one personal trainer for every saudi citizen rather than land neymar and cristiano ronaldo so Elan, are you convinced that this is, well, you know, we are investing, what's wrong with investment, and also this is going to encourage our population to be more active? I think it's insulting to think that they expect anyone to believe that. I don't find it plausible. And I, I just want to stress that this is a, you've convinced me it's a big deal that they've brought all these players. I think that's unquestionable. 
I think the, the question I have for you is do some of the math and tell us, do you think this makes economic sense? Do you think that they're going to, is there a chance that if they have a game, they'll sell out? And is there a, a view here in which the Saudis are going to recoup this money? What's your take on that? Well, think about it this way. The biggest market in football is Europe. That's where all the sponsors are. That's where the big TV contracts are. How can you hope that you're going to spend five times more in a much smaller market and make money? But let me give you another example. In, because we're both basically agreeing that the Saudis don't want to make money. They have something else in mind. They also try to land Messi. Now, to his credit, Messi did not go to Saudi Arabia. Actually, he went to play in Miami. But they managed to land him as a tourist ambassador. So Messi got 25 million to be a tourist ambassador, which means that he posts a story from Saudi Arabia. He goes there for vacation. Now, is this a reasonable investment for a country that wants to attract tourists? Let me put it into perspective. Greece, which is a country that relies on tourism, our whole budget for the year 2021 on promoting our tourism was exactly the half of what Messi got for one tourist campaign. So this is not money that you spend with the expectation that I invest X and I will get back 3X. What the side is have in mind is that I will invest X in money. I'm going to lose money because I'm Saudi league is never going to, uh, to, to, to bring back the money they give for the football players. But they're after something else. So the question, Elan, is what is this something else that they are expecting as a return from this huge investment? Yeah, I think we should talk about that. And I, I want to make, before we get to answering or giving part of the answer for that, I, I want to make a case for why I think the other part of this story is equally significant, maybe more significant. And that's the diplomatic news. So you mentioned that there is a deal being hatched between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And the contours of the deal are not clear, but we know a few things about what's in play. We know that the Saudis are promising to normalize relations with Israel, which means basically to recognize them diplomatically, have ambassadors, trade consulates, and things like that, and stop the boycott, stop the official ostracizing of Israel that's been, on the that's been going on for decades. And in return for that, so this is, a, this is presented as a trade, in return for that, the United States has to agree to sell the Saudis even more weapons than they already do. Saudis already buy enormous number, uh, amounts of weapons from the United States. Number two, the Saudis want to develop a quote-unquote civilian nuclear program. And number three, the Saudis want and this is, I think, the prize, a mutual defense agreement with the United States. What does that really mean? Well, it means something like if the Saudis are attacked, the United States has to send troops. If the United States is attacked, the Saudis have to send troops and support. That's basically, we, we don't know the details. Is it as strong as other agreements? But it's basically, you get, in, you get attacked, we support you. And there's a lot to say here about that deal. But I, what I want to stress about it is, this is a this should be alarming to everyone who hears it what this really means is so i have a son one day i hope he, this doesn't come to pass but suppose he's in the military and suppose this deal is on the table that means that my son is going to have to be sent to saudi arabia to, de to defend saudi arabia why is that so it, you mentioned and i think this is the entry point into why 
is Saudi Arabia investing in soccer and golf and tennis and, and all these other sports? And why is it seeking this diplomatic agreement? I think the, the entry point to understanding that is that we have to know a bit more about the Saudi regime and what, what motivates it and what is the agenda behind it. Because I think these, are, these two stories are definitely related and there's a pattern here that needs to be understood. You mentioned, and I think we should elaborate on this, you mentioned someone recently who had five Twitter followers or something like that, and he tweeted something that was mildly critical of the government. He's sent us to death. That might sound like, oh, we picked the one guy, we, we cherry picked this one guy who got some weird ex extreme sentence. No, that is not all the case. What you need to understand about Saudi Arabia is that it is a authoritarian borderline dictatorship. You, people who live there cannot choose to have a different government. They cannot elect a government that better protects their freedom. It's not a government that protects freedom. It's a government imposed on the people. So MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, who is the son of the present king, and everyone expects him to be the king and he's effectively running the country. He's not going anywhere. He's going to be there until he dies or until someone kills him or until there's some other court intrigue. So he is a ruler for life. He has absolute power. So one of the famous things about MBS when he came to power is a few years ago, you might remember this, uh, it got a lot of coverage. He decided he's going to round up hundreds of members of the royal family. The royal family is massive. It's not like the British family where there's five people people know. It's like this, the Saudi royal family is thousands and thousands of people. He rounded them up, put them in a hotel and basically shook them down for money and threatened them and tortured them. and that's how things happen in Saudi Arabia. There's no due process. There's no rule of law in the sense of, okay, you think these people are corrupt? Okay, put them, accuse them of a crime, demonstrate it in court, then punish them under objective. That, none of that happens. If he decides that hundreds of members of the royal family are corrupt, throws them into essentially a, a makeshift luxury jail, albeit, and then he shakes them down. Now, on the kinds of things- uh, Sorry, that and one important thing, Alan, this was yeah. open. This was in the open. So there have been later interviews with Western media where Bill Salman said, oh, yes, I did this. This is how we do things here. These people were corrupt. So it's not something that a, a, a brave journalist uncovered that, hey, it turns out in this country, these are things that happen in the open. So that's why we use the term autocracy or a authoritarian regime. It's the regime itself recognizes itself as, yes, of course, this is how we roll here. This is how we do things. Yes. And I think the, just to give a bit more flavor to what it's like, what kind of, how they rule Saudi Arabia. So that was a few years ago. The surveillance of people, to the extent Saudis are allowed to be online, there is massive surveillance. It's similar to what the Chinese do. They monitor what people say, monitor what they do. They have bots to control and influence people's opinions. There is, this is an important, this is a fundamental of any free society that you have to have freedom of speech. There, there is no freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia. You gave the example of a guy who tweeted a few things. That is a common practice that there are people who are sent to jail for 45 years or sentenced to jail for 45 years. And then if they are released, this is for tweets. If they're released, they're then under a travel ban for, for the 45 years. That's a lifetime punishment. Uh, and this is typical. So a couple of things people might not realize is just how religious Saudi Arabia still is. So the MBS has tried to sell himself as a reformer. And I think there's changes that have happened under his rule. We should talk about those in a minute. But Saudi Arabia is still deeply religious. So you cannot legally be an atheist. If it's found out, you could be punished. You, could, you and I, I think 
we could be thrown in prison for 20 years if we're gay. If you have, if you're an atheist, if you're gay, that same sex relationship could put you in prison. If you are at all critical of the government, you will be punished under what they call uh, either a cyber, cyber crime law or a terrorism law, which basically gives the government absolute power to decide who can speak and who cannot. I just want to just one punctuation mark on this whole thing about what Saudi Arabia is like. And we're just scratching the surface. This week and just so happened. Let's not even be... talk about the the issue of how women's rights are yeah. constantly. So a few years ago they allowed women, I think, to ride the bike and go to the cinema, and it was it was in the news. Yeah, and the big thing, the big thing, we'll talk about this as one of the pieces of evidence people give that. MBS is moving in the right direction is that he allowed women to start driving cars. And this is this and this is celebrated. Now, I, I wish Saudi women were completely free. And so this is definitely a positive. But you have to understand that it's it's coming up from negative 100 to negative 20. It's not even at zero. It's not even true that women have comparable rights to men. So I, I just wanted to mention one other thing. And we should talk a bit more about the status of women, as you suggest, but this is, I just noticed the other day, it's five years to the week that Jamal Khashoggi walked into an embassy in Turkey to get some paperwork done. Now, Jamal Khashoggi was a very mild critic of the regime. He used to be an advisor to one of the leaders in Saudi Arabia, and he became a journalist in, working for the Washington Post, and he was living in the US for a while. He entered the Saudi, I think it was the consulate, to get some paperwork done, he never came out. And this was this became a massive scandal because it was so clear that this was a an assassination. They they brutally killed him and dismembered him. And there was some realization that this is really what the Saudis do to the people they don't like. And it's not it's really important to emphasize. Jamal Khashoggi was not saying we need a Jeffersonian Republic or we need absolute freedom of speech. He was saying, let's move in that direction. Let's, let's curtail some of the religious influences in our society. And that is what happened to him. And I, the, I think the way to see the fate that befell him is he was a warning to everyone else in the, in the country. Like, if you think you're going to speak out against us, remember Gashogji. So that was just five years ago. And in fact, as much as there have been uh, news accounts of things that have moved in a better direction in Saudi Arabia, and we, uh, the the climate in Saudi Arabia from reports that I've seen that I think are credible is it's even more scary to be a critic of the government, it's even more authoritarian than it was five years ago before this happened. So this is a country, and as you said, they're open about this. This is a country that is hellish. This is it's religious, it's authoritarian. It's it's not the kind of place that you could look at and say they know what they're doing. They're trying to protect freedom, but they're making some mistakes. They're not trying to protect freedom. They're deliberately crushing freedom at every step that they can. That's the country that Ronaldo is going to play soccer in. That's the country that the Biden administration is now entertaining a very deep commitment with. So the, let's go back to your question. So what is it that the Saudis are after here? So again, the, the main point would be, most people would say, well, they what is everyone after money conventional view so they would say the saudis just want more money but the interesting thing is that first of all as we already said this is not a sound investment the football is made, doesn't make sense in terms of how much money you'll make 
But also we see things like the people who go there, the big names like Benzema or Ronaldo or Messi, who didn't go there but is a tourist ambassador, they also have to shoot these videos where they are dressed with, uh, with uh, traditional uniforms. They also need to say good things about, uh, hey, this is a nice country, you should visit. So it's, it becomes clear that what actually they want is they want the West, the stars of the West, the people who the West admires, to actually give them the sanction, to give them the know that, yeah, you're basically like us. Yeah, women don't have rights here, but we are all the same. We like football. You know, we have a competitive league. Uh, you do business, we do business. Uh, we buy stuff, you buy our teams. You know, this, we are all part of the same global family. There's a term for that. The term is whitewashing. And when it comes to sports, the term is sports washing. We did a podcast with Agustina some months ago when the World Cup was in Qatar, and we saw exactly the same principles applying in the World Cup of Qatar. For example, the Qataris playing, paying superstars like David Beckham a ridiculous amount of money to be, quote, cultural ambassadors, which again, what does this even mean? So the point here is, this is a PR campaign. And in this PR campaign, there are some people who participate because they're getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, which we can ask, we will ask whether this is a selfish thing to do, whether this is something on your self-interest. But the question is, what does the United States government have to do with that? Why, would the, why are the United States government the useful idiots in Saudi Arabia's PR campaign? And you mentioned Khashoggi Elan. The interesting thing is, who, how do we know that it's the Saudi government that was behind the murder of Khashoggi? Because bin Salman says, hey, it wasn't me. It wouldn't make sense for it to be me because this was a horrible uh, PR, uh, PR fiasco for me. So the US, correct me if I'm wrong, the US relevant services, relevant authorities, they are the ones that told us that yes, the Khashoggi murder behind it is the Saudi government. Am I right? So if you have the United States, basically the United States government telling you, we're dealing here with people who, are, who have blood in their hands. Why do you want not only not to cut ties with them, but to strengthen the ties with them? So why would you be the useful idiot in uh, Bin Salman's PR campaign? I think there's a way in which the United States has no coherent policy. There's nothing there that includes a vision long-term of who it is that we're dealing with. How do we think of them? What do we think of them? Are they good or bad? It's, I think the, the epitome of this is right after the Khashoggi murder. And as you said, the CIA came out with a report that was validated as this is the best intelligence we have. And the best intelligence says it goes all the way to the top. That, and there was a sobering moment for a week or two. And during the presidential campaign, Joe Biden said, we're gonna make Saudi Arabia pariah. We're gonna, we're gonna ostracize it. We're gonna punish it for things like this. And at the time, I, and I wrote critically about the Trump administration for turning a blind eye and actually defending uh, Saudi Arabia at the time. But since then, having said that the Saudis deserve to be pariahs, Joe Biden has completely reversed himself. Not only last year did he go to Saudi Arabia, make a special visit there, and everyone was fixated. Look, he gave MBS a fist bump. That was terrible. 
this year he met him at, I think it was the G20 summit or one of the major summits, and he shook his hand and thanked him for his leadership. So you've gone from these people deserve to be prized, which is true. That was the right, the meek, but at least in the right direction to, yeah, we don't care. We need the Saudis. We're going to deal with them regardless of what they're like. And that's in effect saying, we can see that there's a problem here, but we don't want to see it. We don't want to evaluate it. We don't want to admit that this is the case. We don't want to look at these facts. We want to blind ourselves to them because we think we need to do something else that uh, if we said something, this would upset the Saudis and how dare we upset them. So let's not rock the boat. Let's not say anything. That is the most short range, uh, short sighted kind of attitude you can have. And it's, it's, that is not what a policy looks like. It isn't just a flip-flop. It's that there's no coherence. There's no principle guiding it. There's no vision for, this is not an anomaly. This is what the Saudis are like from, from start to finish. Uh, so I think that's part of the story, but I, I think I want to bring out something else that we should talk about, Nikos, which is, we, I want to come back to the question about the US government and people like Ronaldo and, and sort of, is this in their interest? And I think there's a common thread there, but I want to just, before we do that, talk about what is it the Saudis are trying to get out of it? And I think there's, there's a, definitely a commonality here. So sports are a kind of stylized space where you see achievement. You can, it's easy to measure. You see count goals. You, you see how people train. You can really, it, it brings to the surface human ability and sort of the high level excellence, right? So it's virtue and like people really put a lot of work to get to the point where they can play at these, these elite levels. And we admire them for that, right? So there's real virtue involved in being a, a top athlete in the sense of at least putting in the work to, to perform physically and, or, and just the mental game of it. And sports as well are understood to be fair. Like we, we, people are upset when the, the goalie lets something in and the, and the referee says, oh, we're not gonna let that in. And so people upset the referee because there's understood to be clear, goal, clear rules, right? So we, we don't want a game that's unjust. Nobody's gonna tolerate that. So there's, it's both, there's excellence in it, there's justice in it, and there's prestige. Like to be the world's best soccer player or the world's best whatever player, golf, tennis, you pick the sport, that means something. Like how many people can ever reach that height? And I think that's part of what the Saudis recognize. Like if they get to associate themselves with some of the best, highest profile people who've actually achieved something, who've done something important in their life that are admired by millions and maybe billions of people around the world. And if you're sitting in the palace, if you're MBS and you sit there and you know how scummy you are, you know what an evil organization your government is. And it's basically thugs running around in luxury cars, dominating a country. You know how bad you are at some level. And how much better would it be for you if you got to associate your country with elite athletes and, and, and have some of their virtue rub off on you and just have a, a shield for people to pay attention to the athletes and not pay attention to what's happening in the dungeons where people are tortured and murdered and dismembered. So there's a, a, an important way in which sports is particularly attractive as a means of whitewashing Saudi Arabia. And I think they want that. I think it's a whole campaign. And so I flip that over. So what is it about the Saudis that makes them want a deal with the United States? As a, and, and the important thing about that deal is the inversion of it. So the Saudis are the ones setting the terms of this deal. 
So I said the Saudis will promise normalization with Israel. It's absurd to me, and it should be absurd to everyone else, that the Saudis are the ones deciding if to recognize Israel or not. Israel has a lot of faults, and I've written a book that includes a lot of criticisms of Israel, but it's basically a good free society, the, the kind of place where you'd rather be a resident than in Saudi Arabia for the reasons that it protects freedom in a, to a degree much greater than anything else in the region. And that you have a dictatorship sitting around saying, no, we're not going to recognize you. You're evil. We're good. And we're going to decide if we're going to uh, treat you as a normal country. That's basically what the Saudis are doing. That is a complete inversion. That's like, going, that's like having a gang running a neighborhood and deciding if to recognize the police. It's ridiculous. Like, that's completely absurd. And now notice that the, it's a three-part agreement. It's not just we'll recognize Israel which would be, okay, they can have an agreement. And in any way, they're, they're starting to move in that direction because they know they need to. But it's involving the U.S. that makes this so similar to the deals that they're doing with these sports uh, figures. And I think that's because what's similar here is that the U.S. as a government, with all of its faults, and we spend a lot of time on this podcast and in our, in our journal commenting about the faults in the U.S. system. And Ayn Rand had a lot of criticisms that were really harsh about the U.S. system. Nevertheless, it is the best freest country left on the planet. And if you can have a mutual defense agreement with the United States, if you can cozy up to the United States and position yourself as a major non-NATO ally, whatever the category is that they are seeking, it's a major, major relationship, that has a similar effect. That, that means that the United States is lending its moral virtue, its prestige, its uh, deserved stature as a free society, and helping the Saudis whitewash their own by association. So it's giving them moral cover. It's, it's sort of helping to launder the crimes and wash away, or at least cover up, the, the blood that the Saudis have on their hands. So th this is this real important commonality here, and the Saudis know it, and that's why they're pursuing it. it, it I think you can piece the dots together and see that this is it isn't just accidental that they're investing hugely in sports, and it's not accidentally that, accidental that they want an even closer relationship to the U.S., which it's already too close in my view. The relationship with Saudis for a long time has been perverse. But they're asking for Americans to, to, to agree to lay down their lives to defend this dictation. Like you cannot, I mean, it's very, very high stakes when you get to that level of relationship. So to me, this is a desperate attempt by the Saudis to position themselves as much better than they are, to position themselves as civilized, which they're not, and to make it seem like, yeah, this is the place where Ronaldo plays. How could you have any questions about our standing? How could you even question that we don't treat women as human beings? To me, that's right, so, the essential issue here. So what you are saying, Elan, might sound to many people as quite controversial, and they would put some objections on the table. So let's address these objections. And I can see three objections. I'll just mention them and then one by one you will address them. The first is footballers are not politicians. Their pockets tell them go to Saudi Arabia, so it makes sense for them. The second objection would be, yeah, but at least Saudi Arabia is making some steps towards the right direction. And the third one, a topic you are very familiar with, the so-called realists will tell you that from a realist perspective, from a foreign policy perspective of realism, it makes sense for the United States to strengthen its ties with Saudi Arabia. Why? Because their enemies with Iran, the enemy of my enemy, 
and so on and so forth. So let's address the first one. So the first objection is, you are objectivists. They would say you talk about self-interest. If someone pays you five times the amount you currently get, you go there. There's not going to be any problem with you. You're not going to be the torturer or the executioner. So you just go there, you make more money. You talk about self-interest. Isn't this in your self-interest to go and play football in Saudi Arabia? How would you address this objection? If you watch your neighbor's house being burgled, you're not the one burgling them. And if you stand by and you don't call the police and you actually step aside the and let the burglars run off, you're not helping them directly, but you're also not stopping them. And is that in your interest? Do you want your neighbor's house to be burgled? What about your house is next? So you have to think about, are you, is it really any different than helping a criminal? And I think it, it's essentially that you're helping a criminal regime. And yes, you're not the one pulling the trigger. You're not the one wielding the weapon. You're not the one using the knife to cut people up, but you are lending as a, an elite athlete. In this case, you're lending this regime, your moral standing. You're giving them, you're, you're helping them pretend to be better than they are. And that's what they need. They need that in order to continue both lying to themselves and lying to their own people that, yeah, this is appropriate. This is how a society should be run. How dare you object? And that is a, you're an accessory to it. So there's ways in which you can be an accessory to the crime where you're not the one actually pulling the trigger, but you're still morally culpable in helping people do bad things. And the idea that, um, yeah, so that, that's the main thing I would say there. You can't have a narrow view where only if you're the one in the dungeon telling people, how dare you criticize the king, you're doing wrong. You're doing wrong by abetting evil. And I think that you can think of many criminal situations where that's exactly the issue. So to me, it's not different that it's a regime or a government. It's, it's MBS is the head of a thug group and the, the thug group happens to be a royal family and they happen to have absolute power in this ge geographic space. It's not really different in, in essence from if, if a gang took over a neighborhood. Two comments on this, on this, Elan. So the first thing is there's also the issue of actual your own safety, your own safety. So there's a, this is a country with no rule of law. This is a country where if something happens, you don't just go to court and you have a, an objective uh, process through which you find your right. So maybe not if you're Cristiano Ronaldo, but for the vast, vast majority, even of foreigners in Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't feel safe. Actually, I was telling you before the the before we went on air that at some point when I was quite desperate for a, a good job just coming out of my PhD, I thought of applying to a university job in Saudi Arabia, which was a lot of which paid quite well. And the reason I didn't was not, you know, a heroic, idealistic, I don't want to sanction these people. I didn't know these terms back then. But it was just a self-interest thing that do I want to go in such a country where I can find myself in for any reason? to prison, like what would happen if I got arrested in Saudi Arabia for, I don't know, like for a, for a traffic violation, for whatever. I wouldn't feel safe. That's the one thing. And we've seen in the past people going to tyrannical regimes, to authoritarian regimes, thinking, this is for my self-interest, I'll just take the money and leave. But things went out in a completely different way. We've seen, and we can discuss how, what other historical examples we have. We've seen engineering engineers going to the United States, sorry, to Soviet from the United States to Soviet Union, 
and then being kept there basically as hostages. We've seen many cases where people think that it's in my interest to go and uh, do business with such regimes, and then they realize that such regimes play with their own rules, and these deals are not win-win. That's the one thing I want to put on the table. The other thing, just as a cultural commentary, some of the footballers who went to Saudi Arabia were some of the most vocal advocates of Black Lives Matter and of social activism. And you, so you could say, okay, you know, this comes from a good position. You don't like injustice. And yet when they were faced with the criticism, what are you going to do now that your boss is going to be a gross violator of the rights of women or LGBT people? And then you see the cultural relativism saying things like, well, uh, you know, they have their own culture. May, yeah, maybe they don't like gays, but this is like a cultural thing. So the, pro the problem is in the West, we don't have the tools to criticize Saudi Arabia. This relativism that says, well, we violate rights here. They violate rights there. We have racism. They have this gender apartheid. Who are we to judge? This is another reason why it's very difficult for the West to understand what's the problem with Saudi Arabia. But anyway, that's a whole different discussion, just putting it out there. So on the I first think, objection, which says, common, isn't it selfish? Yeah. I just want to say one thing about that. I think there's a common thread there with the, the US non-policy that I was criticizing. So I, I think a major feature of American foreign policy, so-called, is that it's unprincipled. And one way to think about what they do is it's, they try to empty it of moral thinking. They try to empty out moral considerations, evaluations, it's not that they don't have them. I think they just, if they, to the extent that they do, they don't think they're relevant to thinking about how to engage with other regimes and, and that they think it's an obstacle in many cases. And I think that's a, the way to think of that is amoralism. It's like, we're not going to make this a space where morality has any relevance. And I think that's another way to think about the, the relativism that you're describing is like, yeah, well, there are no absolute standards, no principles that govern across human societies. It, what's true for the Saudis is not true for us. Well, that's not true. I think the principle of individual rights is timeless and universal. It's, it's good for people everywhere. It's the right standard for every society. And the society that doesn't meet it is deficient. It's, it's bad. It's not supportive of human life to the extent that it fails to meet that standard. And I think that's what's, that's part of the vacuum that we see here, both among the politicians and among people who are less sophisticated, but still thinking about what they regard as justice in other contexts. You have to think about justice as a principle. You have to think about rights as a principle and use it as a framework for thinking about everything you engage with. Um, but you wanted to ask about, is this, is this someone like Ronaldo who's getting five times whatever he got before? Is this self-interested? So I'm curious, what do you think of that? And I'll give you my, my, my sense of that. Well, I told you from 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 a, from the most quote obvious level of self-interest, I wouldn't feel safe in a country without individual rights. Like I wouldn't sleep easily at night. So even if we even if we leave aside the issue that you are actually giving legitimacy to people who do horrible things, I don't think it's good for your safety. It's not good also for your reputation, for your for your conscience, and you don't really need this in your career. So I understand that people think money equals self-interest. Very funny. This is a caricature that they would say, that they would throw to objectives. So you only care about uh, like money and the rich, which is obviously a ridiculous statement. Actually, it's the exact opposite. 
quite often the price you pay for becoming richer is not only giving up on important principles, but also giving up on your integrity and giving up on even again on your safety. So I hope that everything goes well with these football players. I hope they don't have any, they don't find themselves in any dungeon or whatever. But again, I wouldn't trust such a regime for anything. We're talking about the regime that again, the leader openly imprisoned like half the ruling elite of the country in very dodgy circumstances and proudly said, yeah, I do this, I shoot them off a bit and then uh, I stopped uh, corruption. I wouldn't want to set foot in that country. But you mentioned pragmatism, which let's go straight then to the third objection, which is, hey, you know what? Pragmatism foreign policy says that Saudi Arabia is your ally. Who is their biggest enemy? Iran. Who is your biggest enemy? Iran. Therefore, you want to have a good relationship with Saudi Arabia. Or they would say, what happened in March is something very important. China was the intermediate in a diplomatic approach between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So see, when the United States has not got a presence in the Middle East, someone else comes in. And who is that someone else? Your biggest geopolitical threat, China. So the argument goes, if United States leaves a gap, then some bad actors like China are going to fill that gap. And by filling this gap, they're going to give more power to your enemy, Iran, and they will start pushing Saudi Arabia, supposedly your ally, towards the side of your enemies. Therefore, they would say realpolitik tells us, demands from us that we put our moral considerations aside and we see that the strengthening of the ties with Saudi Arabia is something to our strategic self-interest. So, Elan, what's your elaboration, what's your evaluation of this uh, line of thinking of the so-called realist school? I think it's it's not at all true. And it's it, it integrates with the point you were commenting on earlier about how to think about self-interest in your own life. And I think it's related to how to think about self-interest on in foreign policy. So the realpolitik or the realist school, there's different sub-schools of it. They're seen as the the embodiment of what it looks like to be self-interested in foreign policy. And they're self-consciously that way. And I think they make a caricature of self-interest. Uh, so let me just say one quick thing about self-interest in one's own life. And is it is someone like Ronaldo, is this a selfish kind of uh, decision? And then connect that to the foreign policy point. I, I, I think everything you said is important and relevant to that consideration. It's people think of self-interest in, in such a narrow conception, I think of it as a caricature. So you put it as people equate it with money. And if you get money, how could it not be in your interest? That is not at all how Ayn Rand thinks of self-interest. In her view, to define your interest is a real achievement. It takes thought. It's not automatic. It's not a reaction to stimulus. It's not, oh, I, someone's giving me something that makes me momentarily pleased. I've got a million dollars. I'm happy. I feel good. That must mean it's in my interest. I got 100 million, like 200 million. Oh, how could I not possibly be happy about that? That must be in my interest. That is not at all what it looks like to think about your interests. The kind of considerations you raise about, is this the kind of society I want to be associated with? Is this good for my career? What's going to happen in five years time? Am I even going to get paid? Do I want to be someone who's enabling a butcher? Do I want that on my conscience every night when I go to sleep? How am I going to live with myself? So you, all of those considerations that you raised, 
are, are relevant for thinking about your interests. Your, your interests are not exhausted by your income. They're even close to that. And in many cases, you pointed out, it's against your interest to take the money. It's, in many cases, it means it's a violation of your integrity. So if you're someone who says, I want to see a society where racism is marginalized to the point that it's irrelevant, if that's your view of life and you go to work in Saudi Arabia, you're enabling a society that is racist or it's collectivist, it's, it's prejudiced against women, it has the same kind of vice that you're criticizing in your own country. That is a violation of your integrity. It doesn't matter how much money you're getting for it, you're selling your soul, you're selling your sense of wholeness about these ideas matter to me and I want to see them enacted. So I think it's important and one of the best places to look at uh, what, how to think about one's interest and what is in your self-interest. The, there are some essays we can point to from Ayn Rand and put them in the show notes. Her view is that you have to have a really broad conceptual view of interest, not about, it's not in your, it's not defined by your emotions. It's not defined by momentary stimuli. It's conceptual, it's long range, it's integrated. And the kind of considerations you raised are exactly the sort of things one would have to think about to define is this in my interest as an individual going to work in Saudi Arabia? Now let's right. flip it. Let's talk about the people you're asking. Like, oh, isn't this realpolitik kind of an argument? Like if we don't go in there, China will and they're a threat. And there's a lot to say about how American policy uh, is, operates in the Middle East. And I think the, one of the criticisms I've made is that there is no conception of what is in our interest as a nation in the Middle East. We, we kind of hop from problem to problem Sometimes we have a glimmer of an understanding of what is valuable and what's not valuable. But as part of the evidence that we don't have a conception of our interests in the region is the fact that we were even entertaining a deal where we're treating Israel, which is basically free country and Saudi Arabia, which is the, the exact opposite is it's an authoritarian religious dictatorship. We're treating them as on par and we're just deciding, well, what would be the terms of agreement between them so that they would be, you know, the, the, the criminal here would respect the, the, the citizen and treat him as he deserves to be. That, that tells you, if you can't tell the difference between free and unfree, between tyranny and a, in a basically free mixed society, you don't know what you're doing. And if you are in that position, the idea that, oh, well, we, we can play this four level game of chess against China Oh, we know what we know. We know what we think of China. We know how to navigate that. Therefore, you don't. You're fooling yourself. Now, to the concrete elements you raise, like isn't China moving into the Middle East? Isn't that a problem? Yes, you have to really think about what China's motives are, and you have to know a bit more about what China's doing. But the reality is, and I, I want to put that aside for a moment. But the reality is, it's not the case that the Saudis or any other regime in the in the Middle East can suddenly cozy up to China and get what they think they want from the US. It's not, so this whole idea of a defense pact, it's entirely one directional. It's not like we need the Saudis to help us if Canada invades tomorrow, if Mexico invades. If, we get, if we're into, in a war with, with Putin, it's not the Saudis are gonna make a difference. They're, they're, one of the things I read- They won't really even want opinion. to make a difference. They're, they're yeah. best buddies with, uh, with China, for example. Do, does anyone imagine Saudi Arabia intervening on, uh, they wouldn't intervene anyway and the United States wouldn't need them, but obviously they're, they're close, they, they, they would feel more at home with an autocrat like Xi or like Putin. 
Yeah, and in fact, it's 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 remarkable. Just pe people might not recognize this, but in the Ukraine-Russia war, the Saudis have resisted taking a side, which tells you something. They don't want to alienate Putin because, as you put it, they're very friendly with them. But just it's important to see that the Saudi desire for America to protect it that speaks to the relationship. We don't need the Saudis; they need America. And and to the extent that we play into that we're not acting in our interests. We're, we're helping to support a dicta dictatorial re regime that is in manipulative and exploitative of its own people. And it's manipulative and exploitative of America. If you think about the, all the politics they play with the, the price of oil. So to me, it's, it's not at all true that the, if China comes in and we don't stop them argument, is evidence that this is in our interest. That's not how to think about it. There are definitely questions about what to do about China and how it's moving into the Middle East, but it's not a good argument for why this America should be laying, promising to lay down lives to protect a dictatorship. That's essentially what's happening. And looking at, having a look at the list of countries with which the United States have a defense pact, one finds Bahrain, Egypt, Qatar, Pakistan, and they're at the same level of official mutual obligations as they are with Israel. And they're even considering, according to what we read, maybe Saudi Arabia is going to be called a major defense partner, which is even above uh, that level. And again, like, why do you need a defense treaty with Bahrain? Why do you need a defense treaty with Qatar? Like, how is it protecting you from, from whom? But anyway, so, and let's tackle then, Elan, the last objection, which is, hey, don't you see that at least Saudi Arabia is doing some steps forward? So some of the soccer, I'll still call it football, players who went there, they all had the same motto. They said, look, I'm going there. Saudi Arabia is opening itself to the world. Uh, they know that uh, we are, let's say, social activists. Uh, we... So by the mere fact that Saudi Arabia is having us there, is a sign that Saudi Arabia is opening up to the world. And it is true, Elan, that under Mohammed bin Salman, we've seen uh, some relaxing, for example, of the presence of the religious police on the streets. Uh, we've seen, as we've already said, some steps towards women's rights or something that would resemble, not women's rights, but a betterment of the position of women in Arab society. For example, women are allowed to go to football stadiums, which was not the, wasn't the case. So couldn't someone say, look, Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar and Benzema and all these people, at the end of the day, they're a force for good because you see a country going from very, very bad, let's say, to slowly, slowly, slowly opening. Like, what if this is Saudi Arabia's perestroika? Perestroika was the effort of Gorbachev in Soviet Union to liberalize the regime, which ended up in Soviet Union being uh, dismantled as a, as a country and communism falling in Soviet Union. So what if this is something similar? Why are we so, they would say, oh, you're dogmatic. Don't you see that there are some positive steps? I welcome every positive step that is happening in Saudi Arabia, including letting women drive, including relaxing the, the religious police and uh, some of the other steps. I, I think it's important to recognize those things and to welcome it and to say, and I think my attitude would be more, it's not fast enough. You need to move it. If this is sincere, 
then keep going. And also, and this is an important part of this, show us that you're welcome, that, that people can criticize you that, that you're not going fast enough. Show us that you are opening up some of the fundamentals of a free society, freedom of speech, freedom of, of uh, religion or freedom of thought more generally. I think those are the kinds of steps that would be more convincing to me that this is a turning point. And it might take a while, that's fine, but let's see it happen on the fundamental things rather than, which I think is the worry I have, is that the things that are most noticed in the West are the things that are getting some small changes. So women can't drive, let's change that. Women can't go to a soccer stadium, let's change that. Okay, women can't go to the movie theater, okay, let's change that. But what about women can't leave the country without getting permission, okay? That's moving in the right direction a little bit. But what about, can she marry whoever she wants? No. Can't do that. That's still the case. So there's a. It's not like we're we're just shaving off some rough edges here. It's not like oh they have a few quirky laws here and there. It's a fundamentally broken and uh, unfree society. And to move from that position towards a better, there's a lot of work to do. And you have to demonstrate. To, what I would love to see, what would be encouraging to me and would make me more sympathetic to the kind of position you described some of the sports uh, people were taking or might take is if the Saudis were on their knees basically saying let us continually prove that we're moving in the right direction let it let us help us move faster in every possible way towards freedom and you know what we don't need a king well let's change this let's make this a constitutional monarchy let's do, let's do a fundamental change and not which is what I think is actually happening is you know what, we'll decide when we normalize relationships with a free country. We'll decide if we let you defend us. We'll decide if a nuclear program is something we extract from you, which is something we haven't talked about. So this is a really worrying thing that the United States is contemplating allowing the Saudis to develop a nuclear program, which has it's a two-edged sword, right? It's not like the Saudis need um, nuclear power. Maybe they think they do in like 50, 100 years time, but it's clearly a reaction to the worry that the Iranians are going to get a nuclear weapon, which is already a problem the U.S. is allowed to, to fester. So, to, yes, there are improvements in Saudi Arabia, but I think two things are important, just to sum it up. One is the scale of where they are. And I, I put it earlier as a kind of, they're going from negative 100 to negative 20. It's still below zero. And that's the important thing to, to acknowledge, as opposed to lowering your expectations that, oh, they let women drive. That's enough for us. We're good. He's a reformer and allowing yourself to believe things that are not true. So that's one element, the scale and the, sort of the amount of work that needs to happen for this to be a truly uh, uh, significant change. And I think, the, it, it, and again, it's important, and I agree with you, more and better, the, it, the more of these changes that happen, the better it is for, for, uh, for us and for the people living there. And I think the second thing is, this is a broader one, which is it's there's a pattern in Western intellectual thought and political thought of seeing people like MBS and being really quick to decide that this guy, this is Perestroika, he's a Gorbachev, he's, a, he's basically the guy who's going to bring down this tyrannical regime. I don't think people knew that Gorbachev's Perestroika was going to go where it was going to go <laughs> at the time, so it's not even a good analogy. But the idea that we know right away someone, we can brand them a reformer, that to me is another kind of whitewashing. Um, and I think just to give two examples of this, so for the 20 plus years before the Ukraine invasion in 2022, 
American leaders were looking at Putin and saying, yeah, we could deal with this guy. Oh, he invaded Georgia. Oh, we can still deal with this guy. Oh, invaded Ukraine. Oh, we can still deal with this guy. We just need to reset. And they continually lied to themselves about what was happening with him. We'll take um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Early 2000s, there was a in-depth reporting about him and his wife. There were He was there to reform Syria. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, civil war breaks out and you realize this guy is a worse butcher than his father. He's a doctor by uh, ophthalmologist by training and he's using chemical weapons on his own people. Like this guy is not at all what you said he was. And there's more and more examples of this. So it's, it's wrong to, uh, to embrace someone too soon. And I think if someone's really moving in the right direction, it's good to encourage them, but it's not good to lavish them with undeserved praise that in effect gives them cover for not doing what they need to do. And at the end of the day, the question is, how do you judge whether someone is moving in the right direction? You judge it based on fundamentals or on superficial facts. So usually the judgment, for example, with Assad was, oh, you look, his wife is Westernized. They listen to Western music. They listen to Phil Collins. You know, he's romantic, whatever. Like, this is not the essence. Or now with Saudi Arabia, are they moving towards a target that we want to become a rule of law country? In which case you could say, this is going to take time, but let's support this guy. No, I think what Bin Salman wants to achieve is, look, I want to boost my rule, but I need to make sure that I give a bread and circus to the population. There are some rules that I cannot really sell, particularly to the young people. We live in a globalized era of social media, so you cannot have like a North Korea type of dictatorship is not sustainable in the long term, perhaps. So these are pragmatic moves, but the target is I want to maintain my rule. I want to make sure that Saudi Arabia becomes, sorry, remains an autocracy, remains a, a royal, uh, remains a kingdom. And again, Bill Salman is open on this thing. This is who we are. We have different values than you do. We have a different political system than you than you do, and we are okay with that. So this is why it's not that we, you know, we need pick and we say we are cynical. We see that the changes are not based on fundamentals. The changes are on superficial things. And of course, if you're a woman, it's better if you lived in Saudi Arabia where you can drive rather than in Saudi Arabia that you cannot drive. But this doesn't mean that we will, you know, roll the carpets and say this guy is uh, this guy is a reformer. So, Elan, any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I want to add one thing to, to what you were saying. So I, I agree with that characterization of the distinction between what is a fundamental change, what counts and what is a superficial. And, and the superficial ones are the ones typically that people use to lie to themselves. I think the other thing that's important to say about the, to what we're describing is actually evaluating Saudi Arabia, actually judging it by an objective standard, the principle of rights and, and the, the derivatives that come under that. And that's a moral judgment about a political situation. I think that's the, the key thing that I take from your comment. The, the other important thing to say about that is it's not a one-time decision. And so the, the, often what you hear is, oh, you're not, he's reforming and you're dogmatic. You, no, you, what you need to do is continually update your knowledge. So your judgment is of a thing that changes over time. And you have to decide, are these changes going in the right direction? Is it a fundamental change, a derivative? How significant is it? How fast is it going? Moral thinking is not a one-time decision. It's you have to keep 
looking at the evidence. You have to keep judging it. And things are complicated in cases like this. So it's not as if you can make it, well, I decided five years ago and that's, that's all I need forever. That's exactly the opposite. You need to keep looking and keep judging. And just as individuals change over time and they can improve and they get better, they can also get worse. And the same is exactly true of societies and governments. And it's really important to, to keep your knowledge tied to the facts. And, th and that's part of what objectivity is about. So to me, it's, it's, this is an ongoing question. Like, how should you be thinking about Saudi Arabia? As opposed to, we've always been friends. We're always going to be friends. Let's come to my ranch in Texas. We're going to hang out. And how could there ever be a breach between the US and Saudi Arabia? Well, Saudi Arabia could get 10 times worse and you wouldn't need to have a breach. And the same is true with the US-Israel relationships. Like it's treated as if it's forever. It's, it's not a forever relationship. It, you can't treat anything like that that involves human volition because people can make bad decisions and go down bad roads. I mean, the, the arch example of this is Turkey. It was a model of being a uh, secular society about 100 years ago. And under Erdogan, it's gone more and more authoritarian, more and more religious. And you need to pay attention to that. You need to keep your eyes on what's happening. Uh, anyway, th the important thing there is you need to judge and you need to recognize that an objective judgment keeps looking at the facts and looks for new evidence, counter evidence, and uses that to continually conceptualize what you're dealing with. And that's what we don't yeah, see in, yeah. Yeah, countries can change. And the example, the obvious example is Iran, how almost overnight it changes its, its character from a bad regime to a horrible regime. Of course, the opposite also can happen. So let's hope if this happens in Saudi Arabia, we're going to be here to celebrate it. So let me say a big thank you to our super chatters, to Quinn, to Catherine, to Jonathan. Thank you very much for your contributions. So... Elan, so we don't know what we are discussing uh, next week. I think it's, it might be antitrust. But if people have suggestions on what they want to, what they want us to discuss, they can always contact us at newideal@einrand.org. If you enjoy the discussion, obviously like and share. Post comments on YouTube. I enjoy after every episode going and opening some civilized dialogue with disagreements or objections with some of our viewers. So doing this is something which is of uh, value to us. Now, and you can not only email us suggested topics, but also philosophical questions that you might have. And we are going to reply to them because from time to time we do Q&A episodes. You're going to see more of these. Uh, we have nice things uh, for you coming up soon. So new ideal at ironrant.org. Org. So, Elan, any final thoughts? And uh, after I thank you for suggest for bringing up this topic because it's a it's an important one and it includes my passion in life, which is football, with your passion, which is uh, Middle East and uh, the the wider area there. No, I'm glad we did it. I think it's it's an important topic that deserves to be revisited for the reasons we talked about it. It's, it's, these issues are complicated and they, they need thought over time. Good. So many thanks to our viewers and we'll see you soon. All the best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org 
forward slash membership.